I'm Eric Kaplan, a TV writer in Hollywood with a PhD in philosophy. And I'm Taylor Carmen, a professor of philosophy at Barnard College, Columbia University. And this is Terrifying Questions and How Not to Be Terrified by Them, which is a philosophy podcast uh, where we look at terrifying questions and we think about them and we try to find our way to a place uh, of courage using philosophy. Okay, so do we have a terrifying question this week, Eric? Yeah, we do. The question is, is enlightenment fake? Hmm. And to help us with this question, we have invited uh, Pete Mandick, uh, who's a great guy who I got to uh, know through being on his podcast and chatting with him on Twitter, where he's very insightful and funny. Pete is a philosophy professor, and he's a teacher of psychology at uh, William Patterson University. Uh, and you can find all his cool stuff, which includes philosophy books and a comic strip and a podcast, if you check out PeteMandick.net. Um, so, Pete, thanks for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I, I like the idea of enlightenment. Like, I would like to kind of someday become enlightened. Like, that's that's one of the things I'm shooting for in this life. And the terrifying question that I have is, what if that's just a delusion? What if there is no such thing as enlightenment? But like before asking, well, before asking it, I already asked it. So, but before trying to answer it, I think we need to, um, you know, do that philosophy thing, like define our terms, like, like what is enlightenment? And Taylor, you can jump in. I don't want this just to be me and yeah. Pete. I was just going to ask the same question. What are we talking about when we're talking about enlightenment? Right. What are we talking about? French philosophe enlightenment or... We're not talking about the Aufklärung. <laughs> if you guys downloaded this because you want to talk about the Aufklärung, <laughs> no. sorry. No, we're talking about... Buddhist enlightenment. Yeah, we're talking about Buddhist Spiritual or maybe enlightenment. Hindu enlightenment. Wrong enlightenment. Yeah, some kind of thing where you understand something pretty deep about reality and it kind of changes the way you live in the world for the better. Um, uh, but but can we be more specific, Pete? Yeah, I think we can. And before we say any more about it, and also this is kind of what makes it terrifying, mm -hmm. is that it, the people that claim to have any kind of taste of enlightenment all seem to agree that you can't really put it into words. Right. And when someone tells you they can't tell you, that should get your suspicions up a little bit, that maybe there's a little bit of kayfabe going on here right um right but i i think that we can at least use words to gesture at it you know that's i think part of what the instruction for various contemplative practices is about is using words to kind of point at something that is beyond words right i'll tell the folks at home uh that pete is gesturing with his hands at this point yeah i, I did point <laughs> he's pointing he's pointing so i would start by saying it's a stabilized awakening experience and we could dig deeper into it by focusing on the words awakening and experience and stabilized hmm. uh, well those all sound cool but i guess i want to start with awakening because um you know the greek philosophers said that uh, heraclitus that, that everybody is asleep and it enlightenment seems to suggest if it's a form of awakening that like even when people get out of bed and brush their teeth and go to work and do their job like they look like they're awake their eyes are open but they're not in some way like what's that all about man yeah i think part of what the awakening is is you have these insights that when you say them they sound uh, dopey. Uh-huh, sure. Or, or, or just kind of like, well, what's the big deal? I could have gotten there by some uh, boring philosophical argument. Insights like there is no self, or in some sense there's only one thing, or or in some sense what we perceive is what really is. Like, we could get at least to some of that just by, like, relatively simple philosophical arguments. But part of the awakening experience isn't simply like thinking those thoughts or being convinced of those thoughts. It's like experiencing them. Okay. So people that have had this experience of that, this isn't real, or this is just a dream or someone who's, who's experienced that in some sense, they don't exist or they don't have a self um, or they've experienced that everything changes. Like it's pretty easy to convince yourself that, Oh yeah, everything changes. Even mountains change. But to experience that everything changes, um, people that that have uh, tasted that say that it's just incredible, and 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 they're uh, when they they are overwhelmed by the, uh, an intense feeling that is something they want to keep feeling. It just seems overwhelmingly powerfully meaningful and positive. Um, 
even though when you just try to put it into words, it just sounds like some stoned undergraduates. Hey, well, it seems a little negative. I mean, just on first blush, like like if you say to people, hey, uh, come into my van and I'm going to give you an experience of not existing, people would be like, no, thanks. <laughs> I, I would prefer to exist. Uh, I, I spent a lot of biological energy trying to avoid the experience of not existing like <laughs> yeah like like what's that all about well i mean there's another thing that's terrifying about enlightenment is that there's all these like very negative things right around the corner mm -hmm. and some people that pursue the quest for enlightenment do wind up finding like the dark side of of all this stuff and, and one of them is this in darkament uh in darkament <laughs> yeah and there's and there's people that have researched like the dark side of meditation and, and some people you know really have these terrible breakdowns um mm. uh -huh. and so you know you could lose a sense of self and just be put in a in a state of of just terrible suffering um but other people are able to take that experience of loss of self and achieve a, an intense sense of relief and realize that that lots of problems that they've been experiencing are just them kind of torturing themselves and if there's no self to torture then the suffering goes away right so there's some kind of there's some kind of equanimity that you get with enlightenment. It sounds like maybe more like a mood than a cognitive state of thought with content of some kind. Sometimes it sounds like we're describing a sort of peace of mind or tranquility or yes. something like that. Is that right? Yeah, I think you know, like a, a contrast between thought and experience is really important in lots of different mm -hmm. uh, traditions that are all um, pointing towards awakening or, or enlightenment, and so. Uh, yeah, yeah, these aren't just cognitive states or like metaphysical positions that you come to believe, but it's more mm -hmm. like a kind of experience you have. One of one of these experiences is like this experience of equanimity that you can just kind of let it slide in a, in a stoic sort of way. Um, you can recognize something is happening and um, and just acknowledge it without suffering it. And part of suffering it, like being really upset about something is holding it in your mind, even though it's after the actual injury has passed or the insult has passed you perseverate on it you keep thinking about it um and part of the equanimity and the peace that comes with it is the ability to just kind of let that stuff go that might explain why when people do try to put this state into words they say things which at a propositional sort of cognitive level sound very dubious like there's no self or time is not real or everything i experience is an illusion or whatever i mean as soon as you put that into words in that context you might say well but we can argue about it, and then we're no longer really paying attention to the state. But but I feel like saying this is a a profoundly um, elitist approach to philosophy. It seems like because it says that there's a few people who are, have this special state, and most people don't. And it strikes me that if you assert to such a profoundly elitist suggestion, then the fact that a lot of people don't find it convincing when it's explained as a proposition would be just what you'd expect. Like imagine um, we're the three nerds at a really intense party school where everybody thinks the best thing you could possibly do is to get bombed off your ass and then end up in bed with someone who you don't even know. And we're like, we think it's better to not get drunk all the time that's the propositional statement to our fellow people in school. That will seem ridiculous. Um, but I could still say, and if, if people are offended by that example, you can come up with one yourself. But <laughs> it's possible that a small group of people could have an experience and the way to cognitively cash out that experience is correct. And most people find it implausible. In fact, it kind of makes sense. Like if you think that most people are deeply neurotic, then if you come to them and you say, you know what, or, or like, or like their neurosis is, um, is inflected by capitalism. And you say, you know what, it's more important to spend time with your family and your loved ones than to get ahead and make money. They'll say, well, that's a crazy thing to say. Cause when you're spending time with your family, you won't be getting ahead and making money. But that, the fact that they say that is a, is a symptom of their illness. <laughs> so, so I feel like enlightenment thought kind of thinks that, that when people say, well, obviously there's a self. I mean, I just stubbed my toe and it hurt, and it hurt more than if you stubbed your toe. They would be like, yeah, it makes sense that you think that, but it's wrong.
Is that is that right? I'm, I'm just kind of feeling my way through this one because it seems tricky. Yeah, I mean, one way I think about the elitism thing and, and, and also why I think ultimately there's a way of assuring yourself it's actually not elitist mm-hmm. after mm-hmm. all, is that a lot of people that have reported these kinds of experiences, they weren't aligned with some particular tradition. Some Some people have what they call spontaneous awakening experiences. You know, they didn't see themselves as part of any religious tradition whatsoever. They had this strange experience, and then years later, they meet up with some people who meditate and say, oh, what you're talking about sounds like Zen. Maybe you should go check that out. Right. I think that's a sign that it's not conservative and authoritarian, but I don't think it's a sign that it's not elitist. It might not be elitist. You know what I mean? Like, are you thinking about somebody like Eckhart Tolle? Um, I don't know his story. Uh, who are you thinking? Have you ever met anybody like this? Um, I am studying under a guy who's studying under a guy who's like this. Henry Shookman. He's a Zen uh, teacher who's published a memoir called One or Single Blade of Grass. So he's a homegrown. He's like uh, what they call a Pratyeka Buddha. I don't know that term specifically. Oh, it's really cool. In the Pali Canon, there's regular people... There's Buddhas, and they're the ones who teach us all about enlightenment. And then there are Pratyeka Buddhas who were just in some cave or forest somewhere. Okay. And they became enlightened, and they never told anybody. Okay. And you don't know, like, if you, like, I don't know if you have um, Fast Pass where you are, if you still give money to a token person. Easy Pass. That token person could be a Pratyeka Buddha. Could be. Like, if they don't tell you, you don't know. Anyway, I, I, I got excited by that word. Can I ask just a clarification of the elitist worry? Uh, is the worry, I mean, does that depend upon the insight that you have with enlightenment being a, like a true belief you acquire, that actually what's important is not getting drunk and getting laid, but uh, having a family or something like that? Because there's another aspect of this I would have assumed. I don't know too much about these traditions or or the psychological theories, but at least it's possible to think that however few people might actually have this experience of enlightenment— it's kind of open in principle to everybody. So it needn't be elitist in one sense that like only a few people, like only a very few people can play the violin really well. So you might say, well, isn't it an elitist view to think that only a few people can play the violin very well? Well, it's just a true fact. But in this case, you're not saying only a few people can do this. It's like... I'm not trying to open a can of worms about elitism versus egalitarianism. I was just trying to say, why could it be that when you ask enlightened people what did you learn? They say something that seems implausible. Yeah. Like, yeah. like similarly, I guess, even an, even an expert was like, why do you think you need to hold your fingers exactly like that when throwing a football? It seems like it wouldn't matter. And then the person who's a star quarterback says, well, it does. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that it seems to you like it doesn't matter. <laughs> but if you come away with something like it's important to have a family life instead of getting drunk all the time, it, that's a platitude. You don't need enlightenment for that. You just need some sort of, you know, folk wisdom and common sense. Well, well, so it seems like we're we have two matching a matched set of worries. One is that the cognitive propositional cash out of enlightenment is platitudinous. And the other, or incoherent. that it's implausible <laughs> or incoherent. So I um, wanted to say a thing, and this kind yeah. of relates to a point that Taylor brought up, um, and, and that is to draw an analogy to like the d- democratic aspects of the empirical sciences. So, mm-hmm. you know, some science you need to build a particle reactor and who can do that? But there's other science, like you just go outside and look up at the, at the stars and take some notes over several days um, and, and mm-hmm. come to these conclusions. You don't have to have any kind of special equipment or be in a special club or, or, uh, you know, be inculcated in certain special trainings that might just be a hazing ritual that's hypnotizing you after all. Um, you could just look and and record the positions of the stars and, and planets and come to a conclusion, uh, you know, that, that those are planets and not stars or something like that. And by analogy in a lot of contemplative, um, traditions, you get this advice for how to go and see for yourself. And, and the advice is across many traditions, um, you know, some of them coming out of, of uh, India, some of them coming out of uh, medieval Christian Europe. Th- this advice of just quiet yourself, sit still, try to concentrate on one thing like your breathing or, or, or saying the, the name of God over and over again and try not to think. And you won't get enlightened right away, but lots of people that try that immediately start feeling like a little taste of equanimity. They start to gain a little bit of control over their 
ability to pay attention to things. They might start to have little pieces of insights. Some of them might even have like an early awakening experience. Little pieces of insight. That's interesting because uh, we've, we've spent some time in the first part now uh, ground clearing. But after a, a little break, I'd like to talk about like what those little pieces of insight are like and whether like you, Pete, you, Taylor, me, whether we think that the notion of like the big permanent life-changing insight is real. Okay, so let's come back in a bit. Well, we did come back, you know, despite all this talk about impermanence, we actually remained and and uh, relatively permanent. Okay, but what we were talking about is um, these little little tastes of enlightenment you get along the way. What are those like, Pete? Yeah, so, you know, one early experience I had that made me um, really optimistic that there was more of this was an uh, experience I had on LSD in my uh, late teens, and um, in, in many ways, it was the most significant experience of my life. And what I experienced was how interesting the mind was, which, which really sounds like <laughs> I'm just trying to promote the psychology major. Hey, the, the mind is interesting. But I had this intense experience of reality itself is like this intelligent process. And I could see all this thinking and in some sense appreciate that was my own thinking that I was seeing or visualizing. And I was just gripped with this intense feeling of interest. It was just so interesting and um, meaningful. And that was an amazing experience. And, and so much of the rest of my life has been around, uh, like about trying to insinuate that into the rest of my life to try to just come back to the mind and come back to consciousness and, and, um, you know, some of it is just meditating. Some of it is teaching philosophy of mind and writing books about philosophy of mind. But that experience was something that was, um, number one, it was an experience. If I just wrote out a sentence, that would give you the cognitive content of it. And you could believe that without being super impressed by it. But experiencing it really just had this effect on me that made me want to come back for more. And also when I hear other people talk about awakening experiences, I recognize a piece of, of, of what I experienced there. So you, you think like when you're walking down the street and this sounds like I'm making fun of you, but I'm not, I'm just trying to understand it. Um, you think the sidewalk is meaningful and intelligent. Yes. Yeah. There's certain experiences where you have a, a, a sense of that um, it's alive. And what is it like to experience a living sidewalk or a meaningful sidewalk? You know, one part of it, it, one part of it is the appreciation that anything you see is has to have an, an effect on your body, mm -hmm. on your eyes, on your ears, the rest of your brain. That's all living tissue. And so um, it's not just a sidewalk. It is the way a sidewalk is interacting with this living, vital being. You know, I'm amazing. <laughs> but, and so are you. Like, we're just this astonishing thing that is here for a small blip and... The awareness of the sidewalk is this manifestation of this living process. And um, when you have this experience, you just like see this as uh, life itself. I got a question for you. What I've been wondering about is not so much whether uh, the way we phrase the question is, uh, is enlightenment fake? My question is whether there's one thing we're talking about. How do we know that there's one thing that you've experienced that other people have experienced that we're putting under the same category? So one kind of way to be skeptical about this would be to say, I'm not thinking it's nothing, but I might be thinking it's a bunch of different things. Yeah. And how many things are included in this category? So like people have lots of sort of revelatory experiences, but sometimes they go under the name of conversion or repentance or, you know, depending on what religious language they attach to it, it might be finding God or Jesus or all kinds of things. And what, how are we drawing the boundary around this to make it one thing rather than a whole range of psychologically transformative experiences that have maybe have something minimal in common with each other, uh, but uh, maybe don't converge on one kind of category? I, I think that's a super important and interesting question. And I'm, I'm tempted to try to draw an analogy to 
other areas of like human performance or human excellence. So like art, I, I do think there's such a thing as like really great art, really great art experiences, really great art production, really great artworks. And, and this is something that I'm not just talking about painting, but it would include stand-up comedy, cinema, poetry, heavy metal. Mm. I might say a similar thing about uh, sport or athletic accomplishment, broadly conceived. Um, and what's attractive about both of those things is there's some pretty clear sense in like, it exists. There's such a thing as art and artists and, and excellence, even though it's really hard to pin down, like, who's the best artist of all time across all genres. Um, there's such a thing as sport and athletic achievement. And in both areas, there's this openness, like we're constantly as humans redefining it. So, you know, you look at like what has happened in skateboarding in the past several decades and, and imagine like showing that to people from a thousand years ago, <laughs> they would just be blown away and think it was magic or something like that. Um, and we're, in, we're inventing new ways of, of doing art and artistic um, endeavors, inventing new media or new genres. And um, so there's a sense in which like it, it's like hopeless to ever come up with like a single umbrella a single definition in part because it's the very nature of the thing to redefine itself and it, it's it has an open texture to it if it's very open it could be very heterogeneous too because with right. the example of art i mean you're exactly right it would be kind of crazy i think to try to think who is the greatest artist ever uh you know homer or leonardo da vinci or shakespeare or picasso or because right. these are apples and oranges already within that range i think athletic ability it's a little tighter because there seems like there's kind of measures of performance about how you use your body and compete with another person. But but I'm wondering if it's not the propositional content of an insight you get in this state. Because if it were that, maybe there would be more to say or, or maybe you have more to say about what kinds of insights people tend to converge on thanks to these experiences. But if not, then maybe we shouldn't. We should just put aside the cognitive content or apparent cognitive content and think about the way you've been describing this kind of calm or this equanimity that allows you to focus or not be scattered and fragmented and so on. Yeah, I think you. I think you see a similar kind of heterogeneity in these various yeah. contemplative traditions that I would want to compare and say kind of all hang together here. But if you look at, say, for example, like a Christian uh, censoring prayer, which is an attempt to um, pick up on ideas from the cloud of unknowing and, and, and try to unite like a non-dual uh, meditative practices with Christian mysticism. A lot of the conceptions there of what they're doing is union with God, mm -hmm. where God is conceived of in this roughly Christian uh, monotheistic uh, sort of way, mm -hmm. where you look at, you look at other um, traditions, different parts of Asia, what you're trying to do is alleviate yourself from suffering or, or unsatisfactoriness, mm -hmm. which on the face of it, maybe those are two completely different things. But interestingly, a lot of the descriptions of the experiences people have while they're going, you know, while they're following the path, there's a lot of interesting parallels there. And maybe they are onto the same thing. Maybe they're onto different things. Maybe there's ways of culturally coloring these things. If you grew up in a Christian background, uh, or you're familiar with Neoplatonist metaphysics, you're going to have a certain take on this that someone else might not have. Some traditions are going to be much more about prayer and ritual, and others might be a super stripped down Soto Zen thing where it's just like, just sit. Some of the that's it. Some of the closest thing I've had to a kind of insight, thanks to something like enlightenment, even though I don't meditate or I'm no part of no particular religious or spiritual tradition or anything like that. But the one insight I'm tempted to say I can articulate is something like this pluralism of uh, traditions, you know, overlaid on some common human possibility. And I'm, what I'm thinking about is that people I've read about or heard talk about, as Westerners talking about Buddhism, their Buddhist friends would say to this Irish, you know, Catholic person, like, you don't have to give up your religion to be Buddhist. I mean, you can be Catholic and Buddhist. And Thich Nhat Hanh, I heard him say something like Jesus was the Western Buddha, which means in a way, all the sort of doctrinal difference of these traditions is kind of irrelevant to the unity of this potential experience of whatever it is, compassion and, um, well, I won't, you know, we can fill in the, the blanks, but it seems to me maybe one one thing to sort of get from this would precisely be don't be misled by the mm -hmm. the surface appearance of categories that look like they exclude each other. Uh, like I think like if, if, if you think 
that most people are sort of deeply neurotic and that enlightenment people, this is an analogy, are emotionally healthy or integrated, then you could imagine that the way an emotionally healthy, integrated person explains the experience of health to a neurotic person will seem contradictory and might be different based on the neurotic person. That if you're speaking to a very angry person, you might say, well, everything is not such a fight. But if you're speaking to a very depressed person, you might say, well, you feel like going out into the world. And then those two people could get together and say, well, that's a lot of beans. He said to me, it's like, it's like, chill out. And he said to me, warm up, you know, how could it be both? Yeah, maybe that's what's going on. So I, you know, I would, I'm a little hesitant about the urge to find something uh, unifying here because I want to, uh-huh. yeah. I just personally want to come at this with a, a light touch and, um, sure. You know, I could imagine someone thinking mm-hmm. that it's it's really, really important to think of this as, as something specifically about God, or that it's really, really important that the to describe the ultimate insight as being that the universe itself is consciousness, or that the ground of being is just consciousness. Someone else might say, what really matters is to get off of the cycle of rebirth and attach this to an explicit uh, metaphysic and soteriology of reincarnation. I don't, I don't want to say that those are all wrong and there's a single like psychological thing that it's really about. I want to be pluralistic about that, in part because, I, I don't know, maybe one of those is the right way to go. Uh, maybe none of them is the right way to go. Uh, nonetheless, I see certain similarities and, and, and I allow myself to pick and choose the, the things that I like in my, in my quest. Um, so I think when, when do you hear something that makes you think, nah, that person's not enlightened? Like, because that might be a way to like come at this from the other side, which is like, is there anything it excludes? Is there anything where someone says, I had this great, crazy experience and I think X. Is there any value of X where we are pretty confident that ain't enlightenment? Yeah, that's a that's a really, really hard one, because a lot of people that claim to know what enlightened is or, or even claim to be enlightened they have certain behaviors that are questionable uh-huh. and there are yeah, all these like sure. ca- there are all these cases <laughs> yeah. of these like gurus or or yeah. um or, or teachers that that are exposed as as you know being embroiled in these uh sexual maybe they were just maybe they were just that, con men there's a yeah. lot of possibilities yeah. there one of them is they're outright con men another is that they um were con men who believed their own BS. Yeah. Uh, they conned themselves. Yeah. Another possibility is they were kind of con men and kind of not con men, and they they wavered from the path. That the, they were on a good path, and they had more weaknesses than they appreciated, and they kind of like veered. There's a lot of different hypotheses about what might be some, going on there. Some of the Kool Aid drinkers will say, "Oh, the guru did it to teach us to get beyond our." bourgeois values yeah and you know and i it's another hypothesis that you come across and i reserve the right to reject that as as baloney but here's the Um, let's let's take the hardest case though here's the hardest case we can imagine is somebody who from his or her own point of view has a genuine sincere experience of enlightenment and equanimity maybe maybe whatever words we want to put on it charitably like uh, all things are one i'm connected to the world i'm free of petty grievance and anger and neurotic sort of patterns and so on. And from their point of view, they have this kind of, how you know, describe it as positively as you want. And then from another angle, you know, when people see how they act and behave, they look arrogant, conceited, narcissistic, manipulative. There's a disconnect between their sort of social interaction and their subjective sense of their own enlightenment. I mean, is that possible or or should we try and rule that out i think we shouldn't discount that Uh i I think it is possible that maybe enlightenment is this thing that it just colors your experience and it has no effect on your behavior moral or otherwise that's possible that would be an unfortunate result and if that's all there was to it i I wouldn't be that interested in it yeah i I have some degree of confidence that um why how did you get from i think the sidewalk is looking back at me to that's going to make me a better person to believe that or or maybe did when you came out of the sidewalk lsd trip were you a better person well i one thing i didn't mention is that part of at least the awakening experiences i tasted uh was that um 
there was this emotional component to it also mm. that it, that it wasn't just this head thing about oh it's all mm-hmm. it's so interesting it's all mine but there's also this very heart related thing of a feeling of love and that the the universe itself is a is is a, a loving place and that love itself is this intensely important thing um, and so a lot of the way I just structure my life is about love and my relationships with my family and and the love in my friendships and um, and so if, if there was a guru or anybody who just seemed like a, a jerk or a sociopath, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be interested in their teachings. Mm-hmm. If, and if all they were selling was a kind of interior decorating, like uh, the change my phenomenology, mm-hmm. I wouldn't be that interested in it. I would, mm-hmm. I would seek someone out who part of their enlightenment seemed integrated with uh, an increased sense of charity. Yeah. Uh, someone who really has structured their life around this kind of like, uh, this giving, yeah. this uh, wastefully giving, just pouring love out into the world. To me, that's something that resonates with me. That's really interesting, actually, because I think the thing I would be tempted to say is what I would look for in this person would be something like compassion. And I think that's common to Buddhist and Christian traditions. But there is this interesting difference, I think, although you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, at least there's a kind of dilemma in what kind of love we're talking about. Because one kind of love, maybe compassionate love, um, is tempered by equanimity so that you have compassion, but you're also calm and you're resisting sort of the urge of, you know, passionate sort of commitment. And another, maybe more typically Christian kind of love is really passionate. I mean, quasi-erotic, like love, like you were just saying, overflowing from your heart. This is the kind of thing I think Dmitry Karamazov, you know, when he gets, I think, convicted of, the murder is like suddenly has this outpouring of love and compassion. And this is like um, a Christian kind of conversion to a passionate sort of loving of people around him in the world. It looks very different from a Buddhist kind of equanimity and combined with compassion. So if we're supposed to be compassionate, there's an interesting question then about how you enact that or how you express it. Do you stoke the flames or do you calm yourself down yeah and i i think it's an ongoing problem Mm -hmm. i don't i don't think of this stuff as a bunch of wise people figured out thousands of years ago and now we just Mm. have to emulate the ancients i i think it's it's like with sports or with art like we're constantly figuring out ways of of doing things Mm -hmm. better by our own lights and also constantly arguing with each other about what that even means what counts as better what would be a, a a better way of doing skateboarding or what would be a more interesting way of, of playing chess? Do we need to revise the rules uh, of chess given the way uh, the computers play chess? You know, are we done making paintings now or do we, is it better to do some kind of live performances um, with the visual arts since again, to bring up computers, they're going to be good at that too. Um, so we're constantly reinventing what counts as excellence in the arts and, and excellence in other areas of human performance and I w- mm-hmm. would expect the same is true here. But wait, that, I thought uh, I thought there's a sense in which enlightenment is the ultimate telos of human existence. And once you've achieved it, you don't have more trouble. Like you don't need to write philosophy papers anymore. Um, maybe you need to like tell other people <laughs> what it is. Hmm. But but Pete, you think that's wrong. You think that you can be enlightened and still have a lot of work to do. Yeah. So I mean, some people that. Uh, seem to me to be enlightened they still are practice there's still this it's like they're still working out the gym you don't you don't get a fit body and then that's it Uh right um so they still meditate and there's other kinds of rituals that they participate in you know zen ink drawings or or tea ceremonies and there's lots of examples of this in other traditions and and that's a, a kind of a maintenance but do they argue with people do they change their views on anything some of them do. You know, there's a long tradition they in do. Indian okay. Buddhism of, of these debaters. The kings would bring in the greatest debaters and they would argue about different interpretations of the sutras. But I thought the moral of those was always like the guy who lost wasn't quite there yet. And the guy who won was there yet. But I, I've never heard, like, just take the Buddha. Yeah. I've never heard like... And then the Buddha talked to this guy and he realized that he had gotten some of the Dharma wrong. So he improved it a little bit. Like that hasn't come down to us. Right. I mean, it's hard. It's hard. I mean, the, the Buddha has all, like just referring to the Buddha has all this rhetorical force. And so if you want to if you want to uh, revise a Buddhism, it's best if you could say that this is what the Buddha meant after all. Right. So uh-huh. Nagarjuna, he he uh, legend says, uh, went down to the bottom of the ocean and, and got 
from the Serpent King, the special teachings from the Buddha. The Buddha gave it to the Serpent King. and now, To the Serpent King, yeah. which was smart of the Buddha. Um, by the way, I always think it's interesting, like the snake in the Garden of Eden brings wisdom, but that's considered to be a bad thing. But in the Nagarjuna story, the snake brings wisdom. That's a good thing. Good snake. Good snake. Good snake. <laughs> anyway, go on. But like Nagarjuna, like he probably, you know, could have said there was no snake. I didn't get this from the Buddha. I just thought about it. I think I'm, I'm a little smarter than the Buddha. And that probably wouldn't have had as uh, had as many uh, converts right. uh, as the one where you could claim you got it from the the original source. Uh, and, and I think there's a lot of that stuff going on all the time. Yeah. And there's a kind of an urge that people have to like figure out, well, what's the one true teaching? Um, and to try to cement it in, in the wisdom of, of the ancestors. I, I suspect that it's, it's just us chickens making it up as we go along. Um, but it's not, it's not fake. Why isn't it fake? Uh, because the, because there are these similarities across times, across traditions, across the globe people seem to agree on certain basic things well there's similarities to getting drunk across the globe but nevertheless we think that the experience you get when you're drunk is is number one not uh you know veridical <laughs> it's not true it's a delusion and is not good for you so just because people along the globe have figured out some kind of way to like stick something in their brain and move it around I don't think that yet convinces me that enlightenment is not fake. Um, okay, well, that's actually really interesting. I was going to pursue a different, slightly different question about when you were saying enlightenment is the highest thing or the telos of all existence, and it sounded like you thought, therefore, there's sort of nothing left to do. But I thought a lot of these traditions are uh, include an ethical component. So, like, I mean, more recently, I keep mentioning Thich Nhat Hanh and engaged Buddhism, and the whole point is to be engaged in the world. I mean, it's not might not be the ancient tradition, but... Oh, but... yeah, I didn't mean there's nothing left to do. I guess I meant... Um... There's nothing higher than that. There's no further goal. There's no, yeah, there's no further goal, like... but it doesn't mean that it's you just check out in your cave and be like, Good luck, monkeys. <laughs> like, like you do if, if, like the Buddha worked himself crazy trying to teach people, and there's this idea that of bodhisattvas who are who are not going to rest until every other single being has achieved enlightenment first, yeah. and then they'll achieve enlightenment. So, yeah, okay. absolutely. But let's go back um, to the point you were just making, maybe more interesting um, about uh, what is what do we mean by fake. When we posed our question, is enlightenment fake? Right. Uh, that could be two different things. Like, I was interpreting mm -hmm. it as like, is there any such thing? Or is this just a word that gets applied to so many different things, it's sort of maybe useless? Um, or, or maybe it's fashionable now, but it'll go out of use. Like, a, a nice example of this is chastity used to be a word for a general character trait. And you could mm -hmm. sort of judge people by that character trait. And now it doesn't mean that at all. It just is a very sort of crude, literal sense of, yeah. you know, do you have sex or not? Maybe this will sort of go by the wayside. But Eric, you were thinking like, okay, even if it's one thing like getting drunk, because getting drunk is one thing. It's an intoxication, you know, chemically induced by alcohol, whatever. Uh, but then the question is, what good is it or is it a good thing or should we be suspicious of it? And... Uh, if that's what we're asking about, like, is it a good, is, is it fake in the sense that it's not worth much? It's overhyped. It's overhyped. It because even though is it's it a, thing, a thing, it's a thing, yeah. but it's overhyped because we should be very suspicious of it. Because maybe it's it's covering up a whole lot of bad behavior and self-deception and ah. so on. Um, but then I would have thought the answer to that is something like there's an other related goodness, which is something like compassion, connectedness, empathy, love. And there's a self-care kind of component, which is you can get disentangled from a lot of neurotic-causing sorts of disturbances in your life and achieve a kind of focus about yourself and your situation and so on. And if, I mean, I know that's all vague language, but if that's what we're talking about, it does sound like a very uh, desirable sort of thing, which may cut across cultures and be quite universal. Yeah, and just to, to add to Taylor's list, uh, you know, part of what's attractive to me, besides the things that you mentioned, is that there's a promise of a wisdom or knowledge. Okay, that's, that's maybe, maybe we should focus on that. Yeah, because there I'm much more skeptical, precisely because if it's not something you can put into, you know, fairly explicit, clear language, then I'm not sure I know what we're talking about anymore. Right. Um, yes. Oh, 
Oh, I, I'm, I'm going to push back with some exciting philosophy of language. Uh, you, you folks at home, you can't imagine how exciting this philosophy of language point is going to be. But I think maybe we should, should we take a break? I feel like we're about at time for a break. Yeah, we are. So let's take a little break. took a little break okay well that was a good break um so i i i we, taylor raised the issue that like maybe if you can't say what it is it's not actually an insight right is that a fair restatement i'm not sure i want to uh, endorse that quite in that form but yeah for the purposes of the conversation i'll echo wittgenstein who said if something like if you can't say it you can't think it and and i feel like Anytime I try and say something, I mean, not anytime, like if I try and say, hey, the uh, the whiteboard cleaner is on the shelf, I'm pretty confident of success. But often it's a leap in the dark, whether I'm going to successfully communicate anything. So I feel like if you were to say, nothing is worth saying unless we know ahead of time if we're going to succeed when we try to say it, that this would be a ridiculously high bar. <laughs> to clear. Yeah, I agree with I agree with you about that. Yeah, yeah. So, but yeah, here's the challenge. Like maybe we can focus on some candidate uh, expression of an insight that meditation might yield that we could think about. Let's do it. Have you got one, Pete? Uh, yeah. So, um, one might be that um, there's just awareness, and you can imagine that that's true. You could even maybe convince yourself of like a. Barclay argument for idealism or just imagine the Cartesian skeptical scenario. But it's another to have like an experience of that there's just awareness. And, hmm. you know, one thing that I want to add to this is that um, it, it's possible that even though we should be worried about this kind of like Wittgensteinian beetle in a box problem, you know, maybe this is just nothing at all. Mm -hmm. Um <laughs> I, I'm open to the possibility that um, what we call knowledge in these European traditions might be just a very narrow thing. And you can, I think, get a taste of what some other ways of thinking about knowledge are, or more broadly thinking about like desirable mental states or desirable states of consciousness, aside from discursive knowledge. So there's, this might not work for you or the listeners, so I'm sticking my neck out here. But there's someone, a Dzogchen-inspired teacher, a Western meditation teacher that, that I like a lot, named Locke Kelly. And he has these instructions for how to get tastes of these. And one of them that, that I find personally very effective is he, he says, um, contemplate this question. What is there when there's no problem to solve? And... When I do that, and that's it for the exercise, you just think about that question. What is there when there's no problem to solve? And the effect that it has on many people is to switch into this different kind of attention or awareness where you're, where you're not using like the problem-solving, thinky, self-talky part of your mind. You're shifting to something that's more gestalt-oriented, that's more about perceiving larger patterns, it, it, it's more like um, attending to the whole visual scene instead of just focusing on a particular object in that scene. And trying this a few times, you could get a taste of like what knowledge might be aside from simply being able to state a proposition. Mm -hmm. I think a lot more can be expressed than anything statable in the form of a truth-valuable proposition, that's for sure. Like what else? Yeah. Well, there's uses of language that are metaphorical and evocative and and just really... Um, lyrically expressive that convey something, that communicate something. So, in other words, I think there's a lot of different levels of expressibility and there's fact-stating propositions and then there's suggestive, imagistic or metaphorical uses of language that convey. And then there's just gestures and facial expressions that convey and communicate stuff. And there's all kinds of ways in which the kinds of things involved in meditation might be communicable and shareable right. and so on. And, and to go to other, like, 
kinds of performance. So yeah. think about teaching someone uh, da- uh, certain dance moves yeah. or, or certain skateboard moves. A lot of that is going to be showing. It has to be intuitive. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And and maybe in theory you could sit down and write it all out, but but really. Uh, no one does that. Yeah. What they do is they show you, and, and it's something that could be shared and, and uh, conveyed yeah. um, and passed on, and and there's there's a there there. I have an autobiographical uh, little story to tell you, which is the counterpart opposite of what you were suggesting, though, is because I was a Barclayan idealist in high school. I was very adamant about it, <laughs> and I was much less enlightened than I am now, and I had a kind of awakening in graduate school. It wasn't quite a spiritual awakening, but it was kind of an intellectual awakening where the scales fell from my eyes and I became a realist of some kind, and so I actually think I had an enlightenment, at least an intellectually enlightening experience when I thought all this idealism stuff, which seemed to me self-evident and obvious, kind of just dissolved and I had an appreciation for the radical independence of reality apart from anything like consciousness or awareness. So there's a case in which, you know, if I'm using the words the same way you are, I had kind of the 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 everything is consciousness idea was part of my delusion and embroilment in bad ideas as far as I was concerned. Well, and when you get deep into certain uh, metaphysical uh parts of these traditions you get all sorts of debates between yeah I'm sure w- 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 what seem to be uh, idealists and um yeah realists yeah, and then people saying you know something like an irrealism or non-realism that th- those are just yeah in some sense collapse into each other that's what like i'm wondering it looks like you can, you can have those antinomies as kant would call them sort of at the level of enlightenment or at the level of uh endarkenment as we were saying um yes that because they both fail to express something i mean Time and space could be finite or infinite, and both of those possibilities are kind of mind-boggling. Yes, interesting. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm I'm less terrified. <laughs> I, I think enlightenment is a real thing, and and it's a good thing. Um, what about you, Taylor? Do you think it's a real thing and a good thing, or you're still on the fence? I, I'm very skeptical about whether it's one real thing. Uh-huh. I think it might be a kind of cluster of things that I'm not. I don't think it's nothing. I don't think it's nothing at all. Like there's just a word and it's and mm-hmm. it's tying together things that don't have anything to do with each other. I'm I, I I'm willing to believe there's a family resemblance kind of cluster of stuff that has some kind of overlapping resemblances about equanimity and compassion and maybe something like insight or perception or intuition. I mean, I can't pretend I have very many worked out views about it, to be honest, but I'm more skeptical about the unity of the phenomenon than I do worry about than whether, given the description of it, it's going to be a good thing. I think properly described, it sort of has to be a good thing or else then I don't know what we're talking about. But I'd like to know more about the common thread running through these things. And I suspect it won't have very much to do with the cognitive or propositional content of the kinds of ideas people then have when they're in this state. Though I think you, there might be a way of interpreting that level of discourse, that intellectual kind of discourse, the way you interpret dreams. You regard them as um, symptomatic or symbolic of something else that's going on that keeps requiring further attention. I think my view is very similar to what Taylor just expressed. A, a, a couple pieces I would add to that is, um, even though I, I come at this as kind of a pluralist and, and don't want to hitch my wagon to any particular guru or any particular mm-hmm. tradition, mm-hmm. Um, I, I I also think that um, the different cognitive states or metaphysical positions could be useful tools. Yeah, right, right, right. So I don't want to be completely skeptical or agnostic about them. Uh, you know, it might actually be a useful exercise to spend at least a little time trying to take seriously that um, there is no self or that everything is, is just consciousness. It maybe, uh, you know, it would be useful to also uh, give up the idealism and believe in rocks for a while. Yeah. Um, you know, Schopenhauer, so think- Schopenhauer says something which I found very moving, and it's because I don't really believe, literally, <laughs> that what he's saying is true. But I found it very moving and kind of insightful. One example that he gives of people's insight that the individuation between one person and another is a kind of illusion 
it's a mere surface appearance that isn't really what's going on, is this phenomenon which is widely attested that people will, in a split second, risk their lives to save another person, like somebody who's about to jump off a bridge and the fireman or whatever sort of leans way over, you know, so that they could easily fall off. And in a moment of reflection, they might decide not to do that, because why should I risk my life to save this person after all, right? The more you think about it, the less reason there would be to do it. But their gut reaction was one of spontaneous immediate assistance and help. And Schopenhauer says that shows you that in that moment they saw that they were, you know, not distinct from the other person, that it was one mind or one will. Mm -hmm. And I find that very poignant. I don't yeah. I don't believe it metaphysically. <laughs> you don't believe it's negation metaphysically either. Do you Taylor? I don't believe what? You don't believe it's negation either, right? I thought you're you're down on metaphysics. I, I'm down on metaphysics, yeah. But what I think is that it, persons are individuated. Oh you do? Yeah, sure. Of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, well, we need to talk about that. They're connected, but they're individuated. I mean, I'm one person and you're another one. I mean, oh, um, maybe. I, yeah. maybe. So we're entwined, we're entangled. But what I found kind of moving was that even though I thought the way I read that, I would say it's a fiction, but it gives me insight into something. Like I'm, I'm willing to say actually what we love about the people's willingness to do that is that they are willing to overlook their individuation of one to the other and act with compassion as if they're one person or as if this person is the most important person to them in the world, which let's stipulate it's not. It's a stranger. Anyway, um, so I like that idea that, as you say, that these uh, the intellectual or cognitive level of discussion can be a heuristic or a prompt or symbolic of something that maybe we just will never be able to state as a fact or believe as a fact in my case. Yeah, and I... I... I don't know if Taylor, you're going to like this, but I think there's intermediate levels too. The, yeah. the, it doesn't mm -hmm. just have to be true versus false versus sure, silent. Mm -hmm. So you, you know, take like w w I get a mug from my kids that says I'm number one dad, and yeah, no, I agree with you about it. <laughs> like, yeah, I, I could say like, well, how did did you really survey all the dads and yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, but but uh, get out of here, you idiot. That's obviously false. Uh, but I don't think of it as like it's a useful fiction. I'm going to pretend like I'm number one dad. There's a certain level where I just kind of relax. And, it shows and you something. Like mm -hmm. Live into it. Like I'm number one dad. So I think this was cool. Before we before we um, take our leave of each other, because every meeting is a parting, as the Buddha pointed out. <laughs> if the folks at home would like to become enlightened, do you have any tips? Yeah, I would say they should try to set aside a couple minutes separate minutes and spend those minutes uh paying attention and not thinking all right and, and see what they think of that mm. see what it feels like cool okay uh sounds like a good idea um thanks thanks for being on the show pete it was great fun thanks for having me taylor this was terrific fun thanks for joining and, uh, us and sharing our terror and everybody at home this has been a, a terrifying questions podcast so so have a nice day goodbye bye podcast is created by Eric Kaplan and Taylor Carman, produced by Amanda Eberhardt, and edited by Taylor Carman.